Welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. to another episode of Turn the Page. I am one of your hosts today, Jen, and I am joined by my colleague. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Jessica. Very nice to be here. And Jessica and I are here with a fantastic writer um, whose book I literally just finished reading right before the episode started. I could not put it down, so I was just like reading it in the empty Zoom room. So let's get right into it. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Yeah, my name is Scott Leeds, and the book is Schrader's Cord. Thank you so much for being here. And um, before we get into the book, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your journey to the book, where the idea kind of, what its inception point was, if it was a character, a um, a line of dialogue, an image, a song, perhaps, given them sort of musical topic. I, I was just about to say, was it a note? <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, well, I've been a musician, uh, my entire life, essentially, I started playing music when I was about five or six. Um, I even worked as a composer for a while in Los Angeles. And uh, the book, I the idea of the book really came to I wanted to talk about I worked in record stores, I worked in Tower Records, amongst a couple other record stores. And um, I always loved that community. I loved obviously High Fidelity and Empire Records. And you just I, when I saw Empire Records when I was a kid, like, oh, I want to do that. I want to work in a record store because that just sounds amazing. And they're full of these great archetypes, right? You have the metal guy, the jazz guy, you know, the guy who's like only into like indie, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, foreign releases, you know, only likes the B-sides, stuff like that. And um, but I guess the real inflection point was I used to back when I was like 19, I worked at Toys R Us up in Bellingham, Washington uh, with my buddy Seth. And he's, you know, probably the biggest music nut that I know personally. And we were in the back room on our break at Toys R Us. And we had this Flaming Lips, uh, Flaming Lips album called Zyrica, which was four discs. And we were in a room full of like Disney themed boom boxes and Dora the Explorer boom boxes and SpongeBob boom boxes. And we're like, well, we have enough boom boxes here. So let's set them all up. We put all four CDs on. We pressed them simultaneously. And then our manager came in and said, you know, we can hear that across the entire store because my microphone was on, my walkie talkie was on. And so like every employee could hear it. And um, I always thought like, that's kind of a cool idea. Like, what if you played all four of these at the same time and something bad happened? What if, you know, music, which has always been our gateway to solace of some kind, whether we're heartbroken or we're in love or, you know, we're furious, there's always a song that can kind of match that emotion. And we never really go to music to be damned. We go to music to be saved. And so what would happen if the opposite were true? Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's 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 basically it. It's such a great uh, glimpse at like the music world on two coasts, really. Yeah. Um, I have not been to Seattle, but like I am, yeah, through film, I am sort of like familiar with the depiction right. of music culture, but I am from New York and I went to NYU in the early aughts. And so like I grew up going to a lot of the places like in the, like where you talk about, like I spent the last few years like at Brooklyn Steel and like mm -hmm. at like a dozen venues that don't exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> You know, this made me think about sub pop records and like all of the music stores I used to go to. Like there was one, well, there's of course Tower, but there was one like right across the street from it on West Fourth Street called Other Music that my I my favorite uh, Fourth and Lafayette. Yeah, yes. My favorite music <laughs> store in the world. Oh my gosh. So I lived in New York for eight years. 
<laughs> and I would go to other music every Tuesday and then, then later every Friday when new release day switched. <laughs> and most of my favorite records during that period in New York, I mean, it was other music. That was that was the place. And that's, you know, the guys from Black Dice worked there. The guys from Animal Collective worked there. And so you have this great sort of history of this place. It's so sad that it's gone. Um, and then Brooklyn Steel, funnily enough, was my last concert was Wolf Parade at Brooklyn Steel, like two days, three days before lockdown. And uh, so I haven't seen a live show since then. And so that's that's Brooklyn Steel sort of living in my memory. So when I was writing the book, I was like, I got to put it in there because, you know, it was the last one I saw. I I really just like I love everything that you're talking about. Also, um, Jen and I actually met in a retail world, believe it or not, years ago. Um, it, I guess music was part of it, right? It was uh, Borders. So there was, sure. you know, in, in a way, Borders had like that whole um empire records feel to it also it just it wasn't it, it just wasn't music and but i feel like what you were saying before like you go to um you go to borders and there's archetype or you did absolutely go to borders because it doesn't right. anymore. but there was you know when i visited other people and we went to their borders like there was always like the counterparts of the people you knew there uh so i get that and i love that uh, i think that one of the things i just want to know also about the story is this is also very much a family story it's a music story and it's a family story and i think it's just kind of like um a very full um you know a very full tale and i i think horror fits in really well with all of those things so do you want to talk about the family side of it a little bit um and did your family was your family like a music family um yes but not in the way that they weren't musicians um so my mom's family comes from radio my my grandfather um owned three radio stations in montana um uh right after the the, the second world war opened up the stations it brought a lot of the cable out west um so people could hear like the new york philharmonic and stuff on the west coast and so I grew up because my mom, when she was a teenager, worked at the record store and this was the 70s. And so she had a lot of promo records. And so our basement growing up was full. We had this ginormous like hi-fi system with just thousands and thousands of records. And so I would go downstairs and just play DJ and just grab a record, put it on, which is how I learned about a lot of the things uh, I probably wouldn't otherwise know about. And then my dad uh was a musician like in the 70s in the way that like he just you know wanted to find a girlfriend um he knew like three chords but he always loved music um and he loved books and like i grew up in a very you know literate family like with readers in this house and like my dad you know if if you could find him anywhere when he on his on his day off it was usually lying outside in a lounge chair in the rain he didn't care reading a book and um so I yeah I wanted to talk about family. I wanted to talk about how um, art can bring a family together, but can also divide a family as well. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, father figures a lot. My my own father, not to bring everything down, but my own father died when I was sixteen, and uh, I did not have the relationship. Like Raymond is not based on my father at all, but I wanted to talk about grief, and I wanted to talk about what grief does to a family and how each child in a family, I only have one sister, um, but I could see it, you know, with like his siblings and my own mom's siblings and stuff like that. I could see what grief does, how it kind of rips through a family and it really, grief kind of tailors itself to the person and it is based on your relationship with the person that you lost. 
And that's how grief kind of gets in and, and works its way into you. And I really wanted to explore that, um, you know, even though Charlie and his sister Ellie are twins, they had very different relationships with their parents. And then Susan, who was a few years older and kind of removed from their kind of thick as thieves relationship, obviously has a very different relationship with their parents than Charlie and Ellie do. And um, I wanted to explore what grief does in that context, because grief is also horror. I mean, you know, this isn't a book that has a whole lot of like viscera to it. There are visceral moments, but I wanted to talk about, you know, something that is just sad can be horrific. Something that can be is lonely. Just the thought of death is horrific. And, you know, even though it's not a jump scare, it's not something hiding around the corner. It's kind of a slow burn um, that stays with you for a long time. And, you know, we all talk about the grief process and how acceptance is the final step. Acceptance doesn't mean like, okay, the grief is done. I can move on with my life. Acceptance is, okay, I have this scar. It's there. Um, I will always know that scar is there. I can, yeah, I can now not have to focus on it all the time, but in the quiet moments, I think about the scar and I think about what happened and how that in itself can be horrific. And just because it's horrific doesn't mean it's negative. Horror doesn't have to be negative. It's just a part of life, just like happiness is. And, um, I suppose I used music as a way to sort of tie all that together, um, a, because I just love music and two, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of an, you know, I don't want to sound lazy, but it's kind of an easy way in, um, just to say like, oh, like, well, you know, we've all known either people personally or heard of people who had parents that wish they could have done what their child is doing. And they never got to do it either because they had to sacrifice their dream to become a parent or to get a job or for a multitude of reasons. But sometimes there is a little bit of there's jealousy, there's envy, and sometimes resentment to their own kid, even though they're proud of them on the inside. They go, I, you know, I'm it's I, I brought it up in the book, but there's that great. I mean, it's not great. It's terrible. But that recording of um, Murray Wilson, Brian Wilson's dad from the Beach Boys, where he looks at me, just goes, I'm a genius, too, Brian. And you're like, oh, my God, like you may be a genius, Murray, but you didn't write God only knows. You know, and. Uh, and also to talk about, you know, how music can be love. I, I, this is completely off topic, but to me, I, someone just asked me recently, they're like, if you could, you know, what is the most beautiful song in the world? I think it's God Only Knows. Not because of the arrangement, which is beautiful and gorgeous, and it was a work of genius. But the fact that Brian Wilson wrote this piece of music, knowing he had to have known that he was just like, I just wrote arguably one of the best songs of the 20th century. And he gave it to his brother, Carl, to sing. If that's not love, I don't know what is to go like because Brian had a great voice, too. He very easily could have sang that song himself. In fact, there are versions of it that you can hear on the Pet Sound sessions where you hear Brian singing. God only knows. It's great. But he knew Carl. He's like, Carl's going to knock this out of the park. That's that's love. That's what true love is in the world of art. So I didn't mean to get off topic there, but I tend to digress. Something that I really love about um, like the depiction of family is that you do like to tie it back in with what we we're talking about before like you do depict kind of two types of family like there is the retail family that we were kind of talking about earlier and the family family which we've just been talking about and they're used really well I think to say something about each other because like one of the kind of central things going on too is like coming to terms with the fact that like other people have different relationships with your parents that are perhaps maybe as valid as the one that you had even if it was right. like dramatically different and that is like a very kind of touching thing so could you actually talk a little bit about like how like how you crafted 
I apologize if this is a huge question. Sure. Crafting like the the dynamic between Charlie and his sisters and Charlie and like the record store staff. Yeah. Um I wanted to talk about you you kind of brought it up perfectly right there, which is when people have a relationship, not just with your parents, but someone that you know, um, outside of the house, outside of the intimacy of family and just or or just the home environment. It could be a roommate. Um, and you see this a lot and um, you know, with abuse cases and stuff like that, where they go, Well, he's such a nice person. I know him. I worked with him for 20 years. It's like, yeah, but you didn't live with him. You know, you got you got him on vacation at the office and you got him on his best behavior and he didn't expect anything of you because you're not his kid or you're not his wife or you're not his husband. You know, it's you are you are a free agent. And that's kind of um, Charlie's relationship with Anna in a certain way where he can see like, oh, this is exactly, you know, this was dad's mulligan with me. And um you know, because he never really expected much from Ellie. It's not to say that, you know, Ellie was, you know, a shiftless layabout, but I, I don't think he could connect with Ellie in a way that he could with Charlie because Charlie was a music lover. And Susan, you know, Susan was all business. So Raymond had a hard time with that. But Anna is his doppelganger, essentially, which, you know, complicates it even more that he's attracted to her because he's like, stop it. Just that that's this is getting even deeper than I need to get, you know, psychologically. But, you know, how Anna just can't come to grasp with how Raymond Anybody could dislike him. And I wanted to talk about that where it's like there are two sides to everybody, everybody, you know, and it can be on the extreme side. It can be on the not so extreme side, but there are still two sides. And so when someone says, you know, you don't know this person the way I do, it's not a pissing contest. It's just believe them, believe what they're saying, because life is complicated, which is, you know, the understatement of the year. Um, but I wanted to talk about that relationship and how you know, Charlie's relationship with someone like Anna can start off very volatile simply because of all that baggage on both sides. And, uh, and when you add the aspect that the, you know, the deed to the store was given to Charlie, now Anna has an extra bit of baggage. She's like, cause now this, this dude can close it down. He can close up shop, which will ruin both my life and Dale, the other employee's life. And, um, so yeah, there's some walking on eggshells at the beginning, but, uh, I don't know if I pulled it off necessarily, but that was the plan to, to, to deal with that kind of relationship. Would you talk a little bit about um, sort of like the landscape of the supernatural in this story? And um, I guess um, the rules to being a ghost, like, you know, and, and hauntings, because that's one of my favorite things about horror in general and just how, you know, when, when people say, you know, oh, is there life after death? And you, you start theorizing, it's almost like, Two people can have a very similar view, but it's also a little skewed. And I think that this was a very interesting one. So I'd love to hear you talk about it a little. Yeah, I um, I'm thinking of that line. It might be like a Neil deGrasse Tyson line where but where he said, like, the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. And I feel the same way about the supernatural. You know, we can place our rules on it, but the rules as the characters see it are what they can see. And so sometimes the, you know, the, the dead will do this. Sometimes they'll do another thing and they'll go, oh, maybe so they can touch things or they can't touch things. What's well, like, yeah, it doesn't have to make sense. Um, and I, I, the main thing that I wanted to bring into the world was, was death and it's many, many forms. Uh, because, you know, there's a point where Anna sees, you know, the boy on the bicycle uh, who obviously got in a bad wreck and died from the wreck. And that's a very kind of visceral death. 
And then um, I'm going again with Anna again, but she sees, and this is obviously my little homage to The Shining, but she sees a woman in, in her bathtub. And that's a visceral death emotionally. Um, I wanted to talk about the sadness of the afterlife, of the realization that you died in a place and no one found you. And, you know, how the dead can know that, the dead can realize that. And it's, it's, I guess it goes to the idea that ghosts, or not ghosts necessarily, but those in the afterlife that some have unfinished business and some don't. There's a moment where they're in a hospital, which would obviously be teeming with dead people. And Anna can sort of overhear these different bits of conversation. And some are just like, oh man, I missed the Mariners game. Who won? And then some people are furious that they're dead. And um, so, yeah, I guess death was mainly the landscape that I wanted to to get into. And then, um, you know, when we get into a little bit more of the, the um, I guess, surrealist landscape uh, toward the, you know, the, the, the later acts of the book, um, that was honestly my little homage to, to Clive Barker. Um, I just love Clive Barker. I love kind of bringing like the fantastique into it. Um, and uh, just to have, I, I, yeah, I don't want to get too into spoiler to territory, but yeah, I just, I, I, I was like, who doesn't love Clive Barker? I want to add a little Clive Barker into this. So there that is. <laughs> That's great to hear. Cause I also love Clive Barker yeah. and um, to sort of build on that a little bit, you know, like I'm very interested in like what goes into sort of like, crafting a new like horror mythology as it were like sort of like imposing like giving yourself like a, a, a historical narrative to like sort of support or lend context to like what is happening in the present right uh, and because that also interacts with like the landscape in a cool way and sort of like it feels very American in a lot of ways too like yeah. perhaps because like a road trip is involved can you right. talk a little bit about that aspect <laughs> yeah uh, the, the building blocks of that were um, around Schrader himself um, and that was uh, other than the idea of the records, which was the first idea. The second idea was was Schrader. And um, I don't think I've said this anywhere else, but uh, Yvonne Schrader, I just thought of the name because it sounded like Evo Shandor from Ghostbusters. And I was like, that sounds cool. Um, and I was like, I, so I'm like, whoever the villain is, I'm just going to name him that. And uh, so actually, the very first chapter of the book, it was going to be a completely different book. It was going to be the story of Schrader himself. And I got probably two or three chapters in and I said, you know. I think I'm just going to start with him already gone and uh, and go into present day. And, but so the mythology kind of built itself around that. And there are moments in, you know, the, the, the last few chapters of the book where um, you see so sort of like Schrader's fate brought into view, um, which were at the beginning. I was like, you know, I'm going to save that for the end. But so that mythology of him losing his wife, becoming so distraught. And, you know, dabbling in the occult and wanting to find this magical cord that could open up the gates to the land of the dead so he could see his wife again. I was like, well, that's a very sort of gothic romantic kind of story. And that's kind of what I set out to write in the beginning. Um, and when I sort of changed my mind, I was like, well, the good thing is I have all of that backstory in the hard part. And again, I don't know if I pulled this off successfully was I'm like, well, eventually the characters are gonna, someone, I'm going to have to tell the story of what happened to Schrader eventually. And, you know, those big expository moments where it's like, all right, now we're gonna sit down and tell the tale. I tried to split it up into like two scenes, like one around the dinner table with like the 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 niece and nephew and then one at a restaurant. So you didn't get it all in one huge block because it does become that scene where it's like, all right, now we're going to have a different story within the story and the characters telling it in the third person. And um, so, I yeah, I don't know if I pulled that off, but 
that's that's how it came to pass. Well, thank you. <laughs> Uh, something that I love to talk about with um, horror writers and also romance writers, but that's kind of another discussion, is like managing uh, pacing and tension, you know, and like, how do you how do you keep like the rope taut and how do you know, like, where you need to like relieve the pressure a little bit? Like, where do you know, how do you know where you need to like lean in uh, and like raise the pressure a little bit? Like, is it? something that like um be becomes kind of like internalized as you write more or like what is your like yeah your strategy for crafting like tension that's a really good question um i so i'm not an outliner uh per se what i do is i write a really long synopsis um and so my my synopsis are like you know 50 to 100 pages and i just really like i just just tell myself the story because I don't want to kind of waste a lot of that time in the first draft um, because I'm going to be wasting a lot more time on other things in the first draft. So I really just want to get those beats down and really kind of work on it. And then, you know, I kind of have it laid out and I can switch things around. And so at that point, I have a pretty good idea. I do still leave, even though they're 100 pages long, I still do leave a lot where I'm like, just fill this in here. I kind of put it in all caps. So there is still some surprise and delight when I'm actually drafting it. And then uh, most of the tightening up that comes in the second draft because the first draft is a mess. It's just it's me like there. I mean, there were two characters in this book that don't exist anymore that were completely cut out just to kind of keep things moving along. I love those characters dearly. They had some of the best lines in the book, in my opinion, and now they're gone. And but it's you know, you work with the editors and and you work with the team and everybody's, you know, and I the editors, this is their this is their job. This is their profession. They know the reader better than I ever could because I'm only my I'm my own reader I'm like yeah but you know who doesn't want this you know uh uh Steve Reich um uh reference in this chapter I mean people are gonna love this and they're like I think one percent of people are gonna love it and that's generous and I'm like okay fair um but when it comes to the tension that really is all second draft um where you're just going through and you're reading it and I after the first draft you kind of let it cool for a little bit set it aside work on something else so then when you kind of come back at it and I do I print it off on paper because I spent a long time working in Hollywood and I just I'd get sent scripts all the time and I just hate scrolling and reading and scrolling because my eyes just glaze over and it's already hard enough reading your own writing it's like designing a roller coaster I know where all the turns and the loops are going to happen and so I'll just skip over something that I might miss that's really important and for whatever reason you know, my lizard brain when it sees on a paper, I'm like, oh, this is new. Um, so yeah, most of the tightening happens there. And uh that is just, you know, kind of draft after draft. I think this one went through like three or four drafts just to kind of get it to that place. Um yeah, it's it is difficult though, because you don't really know. And sometimes like I think, oh, the pace is too fast. And then other times I read it, I'm like, oh my God, just get to it. Like you spent two pages writing about a toaster, you know? And so it's, it's, it's really hard to know. Uh, and that's where the, the editing team really comes in handy. Um, yeah, this is not, this is not a solo act. I mean, drafting the book is, but once the, the first draft is done after that, like there is, there's a team of professional people and great people. And in my case, super lucky the, the team at Nightfire that, you know, they know horror as well as anybody to kind of come in and say, I think this is what it needs. And, and this is, this is the pacing it should uh, it should have. Do you write to music? Um, I do sometimes. I can't write to anything with lyrics, which is interesting because I never listen to lyrics anyway. I've heard some of my favorite songs 35, 40 times, 
And they're like, well, what are the lyrics? I'm like, I have no idea. Like, I've gotten in trouble sending songs to people where they're like, I think he's in love with me. And I'm like, why? And they're like, did you listen to the lyrics? I was like, no, but listen to the chord changes, like listen to the music. And then once I, you know, I sent, I remember to an old girlfriend of mine, I sent Cecilia like on a uh, the Simon and Garfunkel song on a playlist. And she was just like, what are you saying? And I was like, that song is so joyful. She's like, listen to the words. And I was like, don't listen to the words, listen to the music. Uh, so when I'm writing, I can't do lyrics, but uh, I do listen to um, a lot of soundtracks. I listen to a lot of classical music, a lot, a lot of jazz. Um, you know, I do listen to, even though I, I made fun of them in the book, I do listen to a lot of Philip Glass because uh, there's that repetition, those kind of sweeping arpeggios that go on for 20 minutes. It really helps with the rhythm of writing. Um, but most of the time, I actually write at night. Uh, my day job, I'm, I'm, uh, I work for a marketing company. And so that kind of takes up my day. So at night, I, I, you know, I have dinner, I kind of go to bed, I take a nap and then I wake up at 10 and I write from like 10 till two in the morning. Um, so I, I don't want to like wake anybody up. I certainly don't want to wake the dog up because it took forever to get him to bed. So it's mostly just quiet. I have one like little silly question. There is a point where uh, Raymond makes a, a crack about like them heading to the Black Lodge. Uh, mm -hmm. One, are you a Twin Peaks fan? And two, like that's also like another property though that kind of deals with like a very American type of horror and like Amer an American mythology sort of layered onto like people's kind of personal traumas. Like, is that something right. that you think was like kind of floating around your brain or? I wish I could say it was. Honestly, I just wanted to throw a Twin Peaks reference in there. <laughs> nice. Okay. <laughs> I, um, I, yeah, that, I, I, you know what? I will say, yes, that's exactly what I thought. And that's exactly what I was going to do. Um, no, I, I'm a huge Twin Peaks fan. Uh, I, I remember watching it when it came on the air and we were all so proud here in the Pacific Northwest because it put us on the map. And, you know, this was at the same time as like the Seattle sound with, you know, the kind of the grunge era. It's like, man, Seattle's really having its moment. We got the music, we got Twin Peaks. Like what could go? And then, you know, a couple of years later, we get Frasier and we're like, this is great. And then, um, yeah, yeah. Twin Peaks was, I mean, huge. I mean, I still probably watch it all the way through, including season three, which I know is very divisive for fans, but I love season three because um, it's just pure Lynch. <laughs> uh, but yeah, every couple of years, I'll, 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 you know, I'll do I'll run the gauntlet, uh, the pilgrimage, and I'll do uh, every episode. And um, yeah, and that's another thing is, is the Pacific Northwest. There's something really kind of spectacularly spooky about this place. That's just sort of inherent to the, the vibe, um, which is like when Twin Peaks came out. I remember when I moved to L.A. the first time we were I was talking about Twin Peaks with a friend. He's like, yeah, but it's not really like that. And I was like, well, I mean, kind of is like it's it's kind of a weird place. Um, wonderfully weird. But it every time I'd watch it, like when I wasn't here, it'd make me homesick. Um, but yeah, there's something about the mythology of it. I, I, who doesn't love mythologies? And when you find out about like the Bookhouse Boys, there's a secret society and you find out the mythology of Bob and then the Black Lodge and and you just kind of go deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, it's, you know, it's a shame that they revealed Laura's killer so early because they could have just kept that train running forever and it would have been fantastic. Um but yeah, I I I feel a, a connection with that show. I think that the way that kind of anybody of a certain generation does, certainly people from the Pacific Northwest. Um, David Lynch like grew up in my hometown, so there's some pride there. Uh, I was very happy when I opened up his autobiography to see him like reference all these different places, and I was like, yeah, um, yeah. 
Sorry, I feel like I'm rambling. I, I'm very sorry about this. No, no, no worries. We love it. <laughs> I'm not used to talking about myself. <laughs> it, I mean, it's much easier for me to talk about other people, which is oh yeah, an interview for sure. And we like that. And we like to really like get into sort of like the um, I guess like we we really do like to get into the author as much as you know the book because it's uh, it it kind of it adds to it. I mean, sure. and I, I'm delighted. I can listen to you talk about. Twin Peaks as long as you want. Right? <laughs> okay. We're kind of on a schedule, so sure, I understand. <laughs> I'm totally gonna like ignore what you just said and make one more point about the Pacific Northwest. But do like it. um like I do love how like a lot of our sort of like TV horror sort of like ends up looking like that part of um the continent, let's say, because like Twin Peaks was filmed there, like Buffy filmed there, uh right. filmed there, you know, and like so like there are so many times that like the apocalypse has just like looked like a fist fight between two people, like you know, in a in a coaxing. Oh yeah. Like <laughs> oh yeah. It is it is a magical place if you like spookiness. Um, you know, the summers here are are beautiful and the falls are these Ray Bradbury falls that we all love. But the, you know, once it gets into that, once it gets starts to get really cold and the fog starts to roll in. I, I'm surprised more people don't leave. Honestly, I love it. I just feel nothing but comfort. Um, I take these long, long walks and uh, listen to an artist, uh, Mount Erie, if you haven't heard him. Uh, he used to be the microphones. He's from Anacortes, which, by the way, is where the name Anacortes comes from. It's based on Anacortes, Washington. Um, but I mean, if you if you want to hear the sound of the Pacific Northwest, it's him. And uh, nobody has captured the sound of this place better than he has and there are a lot of great bands you know sub pop being one of them and you know there's uh, kill rock stars and and you know great records out of portland as well uh or record labels rather but uh yeah this is this is a place that's really rife for horror um and is visited here and there um but i've even uh i the the next book that i'm working on part of it does take place here it actually takes place in that fictional town ponderosa falls that was mentioned that's my kind of castle rock that's my twin peaks um, which you know, I don't know if that's going to work out. I probably shouldn't say that because the next book, I'm like, you know what? Never mind. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Let's not go to Camelot. This is a silly place. Um, nice reference. Thank you. <laughs> oh yeah, it's not just music, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So well, Pacific Northwest, yay. Yeah. Thank you so much for, I mean, this amazing contribution to the annals of uh, Pacific Northwest Harp. I <laughs> feel like you. really great. And I'm just very excited for all of my friends and our patrons to get to read it. So thank you for joining us. Thank you very, very much. And thank you for everything you guys have said and the encouragement. Like it is, it's an odd thing to put a book out into the world. I, I get, this was never supposed to happen. I, my whole life I've gotten right up to the finish line and then Lucy takes the football away. So the fact that I got a book deal, I'm like, I, this is, I'm still like, feel like I'm on borrowed time. So this is amazing. Thank you very much. You're so welcome. Um, listeners, please check out Schrader's Cord. By the time that you hear this, it will be out. So head to your favorite library or independent bookstore, wherever you like to go for those things. Uh, and yeah, thank you for joining us. It is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.